Anonymous Was a Woman was recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Jamila and Astrid and the team pay their respects to elders past, present and emerging. We note that this land was stolen and never ceded. Hello and welcome back to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Rizvi and I'm joined by the wonderful, momentous... Astrid Edwards. Astrid, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. And today we have a happy, positive topic. I feel like that is a change. It really is. I think our season topics have very much reflected the world that we're living in right now and the lives we're living right now. Both of us are recording from Melbourne lockdown, but today we are talking about momentum, momentum for positive change. Astrid, What does a topic like that mean to you in a moment like this one? When you say momentum, I think of change and sometimes change is good and sometimes change is scary and sometimes it's bad. But at this point in time, in 2020, I am just looking forward to any type of change in my daily life. Like you, I am in Melbourne and we are in lockdown and nothing much seems to change. So the idea of momentum and, you know, that kind of positive forward movement is just really quite exciting, I have to say. I think we're also heading into some pretty dark economic times as we move out of some pretty dark health times. And while that's going to be distressing and difficult for a lot of us, it's also an opportunity to remake the social compact to an extent. It's an opportunity to fix some things about our society and about our economy. So today we're going to be talking about books and thinkers and writers who have tried to do just that. This is Momentum. I am really excited to introduce to you today Daring to Drive a Saudi Woman's Awakening by Manal Al-Sharif. Have you read it? I have not read this work. Tell me about it. I'm excited to tell you. I interviewed Manal a couple of years ago in person, sitting near one another at a writers' festival. Seems insane to think about being in a hall of people sitting close to someone on stage now. And she was one of the most arresting people I've ever met. The way she spoke, the way she expressed herself, the things she had to say were both surprising, interesting and really compelling. You know, I hate using cliches, but it was one of those situations where, you know, a pin dropped and everyone would have heard it. This is Manal's autobiography. Manal might be familiar to some people from a YouTube video that went viral all over the world. We say viral all the time. This went really viral, folks. This went everywhere. And it was she and a friend sitting in a car in Saudi Arabia and driving. That was it. They were driving. It was an act of enormous rebellion. And Manal called on other Saudi women to defy the convention, a convention, not a law, that women were not allowed to drive. And it was sort of, it's kind of like their own female Arab spring in, in a way. She did go to jail for that act and the rallying cry she sent out all over Saudi Arabia and indeed all over the Muslim world to an extent. The book tells her life story from growing up as a little kid to Saudi Arabia becoming increasingly conservative as she got older and she became increasingly conservative with it until she started to take a few steps back and analyse her own situation and create 
change in her own life and then use that change to create momentum for change all over her country. I remember that YouTube video and I remember watching it and as a white woman in Australia who has always had the chance to drive if I wanted to, I remember being kind of all pumped up, like amazing, you know, that that's, that's great. That's, you know, freedom and independence and kind of what I expect for my own life. But I also remember feeling sad and disheartened. I remember thinking beautiful, but also quite painful to observe. So I love autobiographies and I love reading about the experience of others. I kind of want to ask, is it a good one? I think it's a beautifully told biography. It is written quite simply, which I think makes a lot of sense because, of course, English is Nala Sharif's second language. But I think that simplicity brings with it a degree of clarity as well, because she is speaking about, on several occasions, really traumatic events. She talks about circumcision. She talks about quite extreme acts of violence that nearly kill her at points. She talks about oppression that is incredibly extreme for women. And I think the way she puts words together make you see the truth of that for what it is. She's not covering it up with a lot of analogies and metaphors and pretty words. It's quite raw in that sense. The determination and the courage and the strength of Manal, I think, are the things that stand out in this book. She's gone on to become quite a political figure and has actually sought asylum in Australia. She now lives in Sydney. Her eldest son still lives in Saudi Arabia. She can't see him. So she's a woman who, yes, has created enormous momentum and Saudi women are allowed to drive now, but she's given a lot up for it. And that very much comes through the book. Some things that are sort of almost asides from the book that I wanted to draw attention to. The first was that you'll see on the cover of the book, Manal's face staring straight at the camera. And there's a quite a big scar on her face. Apparently the marketing department for her book in the United States wanted to get rid of it. They wanted to Photoshop it out. And she refused. She said, it's a scar I have because of brutal physical violence in my childhood you don't get to take it away. I think that shows her power, right? A woman who is very steady in her power, who doesn't get pushed around by by publishers, by marketers, by those who are telling her story. She stood there in, in who she was and said, no, you don't get to change that about me. What an insulting thing to ask someone to just Photoshop a scar away from them, particularly a scar on the face, which is so much a part of how we communicate with the world. That's awful. And as someone with quite a visible scar on on my own face from from surgeries, I really appreciate that. It makes me feel seen. It makes me feel part of a, a group of brave women who have gone through difficult things and you don't get to erase that bravery and that courage because you think it's more beautiful not to show that. So you mentioned that Manal was conservative in her own views and outlook and approach to life and then obviously began to reevaluate and question society that she lived in. What was that impetus for her personal change? Like, why did she start to question? Well, first, let me give you an idea of just how 
intensely she held those conservative religious convictions. When she was a teenager, she burned all her brother's Backstreet Boys cassettes. She got rid of her mum's magazines. She used to love drawing as a younger child and always used to draw sort of human figures. You know how in art school, young artists are taught to start with the figure of the human and human faces. She stopped drawing human bodies because it was considered illicit. I remember she gave up reading crime novels and this was during this time that in this quite puritanical version of Islam was going through Saudi Arabia and becoming something that people were obsessive about, not just from a religious norm perspective and not just from a legal perspective, although there were a lot of quite restrictive laws, but that was what was considered moral and upstanding, I suppose. You know, it it was almost, I don't want to use the word cool, but that's where my mind's going but to be included, to be part of the group, to be revered and to hold status, I suppose, within that society for women was actually to go along with that expectation, I suppose. And then as Manal becomes older and her love of reading gets greater and more deeper and she watches events happening around the world and she is a very intelligent young woman and she wants to go to university and she applies to study computer science but if she wants to do so she has to get her father's permission then she wants to do a certain job once she has that degree and again she needs her father's permission and for the first time she's invited to go on a special business trip abroad but she doesn't get a passport without her father's permission and then suddenly on this work trip she's in the United States and she goes to the movies and sees two men kissing and she goes skiing and she learns to drive and for her driving becomes this enormous symbol of power and of equality And so when she returns to Saudi Arabia, she wants to keep driving (laughs) and she wants all women to have that power to drive. And I think while the language in this book is simple, it's incredibly evocative. The scene where she and her friend drive for the first time and the fear, the palpable fear of them doing this simple act that I do every day, but doing it and knowing the whole world is watching them and their lives are literally on the line. It's... It's an incredibly powerful book and highly, highly recommend it as a really beautiful example of one person's actions genuinely creating momentum that becomes something that changes a country. Okay, Jem, so we've just discussed kind of the the social and cultural changes for women in Saudi Arabia, a very conservative country. And now I want to take us to a global topic of economics. So I love economics and you're looking at me like, what has Astrid done today Uh, and why is this relevant to momentum? But economics at its heart is not this dry, boring thing that is full of graphs and numbers. It's actually what impacts us every day. And as we are living through 2020, which is obviously not turning out the way we all want it to, when we see the news and we see job losses and companies going out of business and economies in horrible debt-laden disaster, economics is at the heart of all of that. And I think that when we think about momentum to change, and I'm talking about momentum to change gender relations and climate change and most of the world's attitude to race, we kind of need to know about the system 
that we're all stuck in. And that is capitalism and that is economics. So, Jam, have you read Talking to My Daughter, A Brief History of Capitalism by Yanis Varoufakis? You know, for a strange clash of events for once on this podcast, I have read the book that you're recommending as opposed to the other way around. That might be a first. I feel like I should get a prize. I think everybody should get a prize for reading this book. It is exceptional. And let me just start with, there is not a single number or graph or chart or table in this book. This book is a conversation between a father and his teenage daughter, and he's explaining how the economy works in a way that is relevant and meaningful. So first off, a little bit about Yanis Varoufakis. He is a Greek-Australian. He's an economist, a philosopher, a politician, and he actually served as the Greek finance minister in 2015, which was when Greece was going through some of its worst economic and financial catastrophe that had occurred as a result of the global financial crisis several years before. In 2020, he has since been re-elected to the Greek parliament, and he is also part of Bernie Sanders' international organisation called Progressive International. So Varoufakis is very much on the left-hand side of politics, shall we say. But all that aside, this is not a book talking about the right or the left of politics. This is just explaining stuff that, to be honest, I wish I knew 20 years ago so I would understand what was happening around me more. So he explains debt. He explains interest and banking. He explains the origins of inequality. And whenever we talk about the pay gap between males and females in Australia, he's given one of the best origin stories of that that I've ever read, even without mentioning Australia. One of the things I really enjoyed about this book is that there's a level of simplicity to the analogies and metaphors that Varoufakis sets up. You know, he is talking to his teenage daughter. There's an element of simplicity, but at the same time, he doesn't talk down. You don't read the book feeling like someone's ticking you off or teaching you in a way where you're made to feel silly. And one of the things I hate about the way financial papers are often written and economic articles and the media more generally is that they assume so much knowledge on the part of the reader that intelligent human beings get shut out of a conversation that they are entitled to be part of. Did you feel more powerful after sort of getting that set of knowledge? Yes. And I'm going to admit something. I have a major in economics because I love the philosophy behind economics, but I was a terrible economics student at university because they kept making me look at charts and graphs and I'm not a very good numbers person. I am clearly a words person and I wasn't very good, even though I thought the concepts were fascinating. And I think it speaks to Varoufakis that he is both an economist and a philosopher. He's obviously interested in the ideas about how this works. And I feel like I got more out of this book than a whole major. And he uses famous texts like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Homer's Iliad and famous movies like The Matrix to actually explain how economics and markets work. Imagine reading about the matrix and learning about the economy. Astrid, do you know how long it took him to write this book? Did you come across that in your kind of wander around the grounds? Oh, I did. Nine Tell days. Them. Tell, Tell them. them. Nine days. How dare he? How dare you be able to write something decent in nine days? Yeah, this guy clearly has done the work, right? He has been thinking for decades and he is trying to explain this to his daughter so she can go on and help change the world because she understands it. 
I think this book should be on the curriculum. I am well known for thinking lots of books should be on the curriculum, but this is really meaningful. And I think that kids and parents should read it together. And if we want to change our world, we have to know how the money works. I think it's a fascinating and fantastic recommendation. And you have prompted me to dive back into it because I remember loving this book when it came out. And I think it's time for me to revisit it because certainly with the pandemic crossing the world, economies are shifting. The global economy is shifting. Our world in five years is not going to look like what we remember. And those who understand the economics and how the money works, they're the ones who are going to have the power. So let's go get some. And can I say, and I'm very excited about this, Jam. Talking to My Daughter was first published in English in 2019. It is a work in translation. Varoufakis originally wrote it in Greek in 2013, I believe. But having read his book and loving it, I have now spent quite a bit of time Googling what he's up to at the moment. And in September 2020, so this month, he actually has a new book out. Now, I haven't read this book, but it is called Another Now, Dispatches from an Alternative Present. And This looks just amazing. It's a genre-bending thought experiment where he develops a platonic dialogue combined with speculative fiction, painting us a happy picture of 2025. Now, we are in 2020 and no one is giving me a happy picture of 2025. So I want to read his vision for when we are all living in a fair and equal society in five years' time. I love this idea. Oh my goodness. He's just written the book that I needed rather than me rereading his old text and trying to apply it to the present. Thank you. Astrid, recommendations time. What have you got for me? Books to change the world. I have two books to recommend today, both nonfiction and both written by incredible older women. So when I was thinking about momentum and change and what I kind of hope to see happen in the future, I realised that firstly, I've been incredibly lucky to be born at the time and place in history that I have been born. My life has been materially better based on the actions of women before me. I had a better life than my mother and my mother had a better life than my grandmother. And so it goes. Okay. And I want to contribute to the future, but I thought, all right, I want to take a look back at some of the women who meant that I have had a better life. So firstly, I would like to introduce you to, I know why the cage bird sings by Maya Angelou. Have you read it? I have, I have, but I've got to admit, I haven't read it for many years. So Maya Angelou was a black American woman born in 1928 in St. Louis, Missouri. Now, my husband comes from St. Louis, Missouri, and despite being an Australian, I know the city quite well. And it is a city of America that is fraught with pain and replete with history, shall we say. And I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings is actually the first of seven autobiographies and it was originally published in 1969. Now it is still in print. All of Maya Angelou's work are still in print and I suspect they will be in print for many, many decades to come. In her life, she experienced extreme poverty, discrimination, abuse. She also witnessed the civil rights movement and this first autobiography was published just after uh, civil rights came to the fore in America. And she saw the first black president take office. And in 2010, May Angelou actually received the Presidential Medal from former President Barack Obama. Now she passed away a few years ago, but she has left a legacy that few writers do. And to be honest, I'm 
pretty darn impressed with anyone who had such an eventful life. They got seven autobiographies out of it. I think that is extraordinary. And she was an extraordinary woman. There is a reason that every book that ever was written seems to quote her now. She wrote beautiful prose, but also had incredibly important things to say. And I think moved a global conversation along, which is surely the very definition of books that create momentum. Absolutely. Now, the second book I want to recommend comes from the same place, but is a very different author. And it is by Jane Fonda. Hold on. Jane Fonda, Jane Fonda? Yeah, yeah. Jane Fonda, Jane Fonda. As in her father was Henry Fonda. Her brother was Peter Fonda. Her niece is Bridget Fonda. You know, she married the guy who founded CNN. You know, her life experience is one of incredible white Hollywood privilege. And her life experience is not comparable to many people on the planet at all. However, she has always been an activist, most famously when she got herself arrested for protesting America's participation in the Vietnam War. Now, her activism isn't without issue. And sometimes over the last 50 or 60 years, she has apologized for some of her actions. But she is now in her 80s. I believe she's 82 and she is still going. And when we talk about momentum and change, that's pretty impressive. And now she is focused on the climate. Now, Jane Fonda has gone and got herself arrested at least four times in the last 12 months. And I just want to read you the dedication in this book. When I was young, I thought activism was a sprint and I worked around the clock hoping for quick change. When I was older, I learned activism is a marathon and I learned to pace myself. At 82, I realize it is neither a sprint nor a marathon. It is a relay race. The most important thing we adults can do now is to join and support the next generation of climate activists ready to lead the movement. Now that's oh, my I, I feel a bit pathetic, but I actually got tingles when you said relay race. What a great quote. Yeah. So you know what? I am really worried about the climate. And to be honest, I hope Jane Fonda keeps getting herself arrested until she passes away. She is 82. And I think that there is a place for peaceful protest. And I think that there is a place for civil disobedience. And if Jane Fonda can be a part of that movement to help our climate, I am all for that. And I should also say that all the proceeds from What Can I Do by Jane Fonda are actually going to Greenpeace. So she's not making any money off this. Bring it on. I am here for it. I have two recommendations for you today, Astrid. And look, I'm going back into the past for mine. So I have a feeling you will have read them both. The first is Beloved by Toni Morrison, written to pay tribute, I suppose, to the memory of black slaves who were brought over during the slave trade. This book's one of, I don't know, I I think I can use the big words here. I reckon it's one of the most influential pieces written in modern literature. I don't think I'm overdoing it there. It gives a voice to black Americans and the experience of black Americans. And it is not only observant, but I think it's an act of collective memory, the writing of this book. It is truly beautiful and heartwarming and it won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1988 and I think it woke up a whole lot of the world. I don't think that's too big a call. I think it is one book in the contemporary canon. And also, Jam, I haven't read it yet, nor have I seen the movie. (gasps) Okay, you have homework. I'll talk to you about it next week. My second recommendation, oh, and I think I'll cry if you haven't read either, Astrid, is The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir. I haven't read it, but I do have it on my to-be-read feminist pile. Does that count? No. (laughs) It's usually me who gets in trouble for not having read it. You've got lots of homework. So written by a French philosopher, 
many say this was the starting point for second wave feminism, right? This was the kickoff point. It is an attempt to document the systemic oppression of women from like forever. <laughs> so it's like, it's a big call, right? She's, it's a big book and it's a big call. What she sets out to do is a fairly grand task. Apparently when she finished it and presented it to the world, there was this influx of letters saying, you have articulated the feelings I've had for so long. And I think when something like that happens on the scale that it did with the second sex, making clear to so many women that they were treated like second-class citizens for so long, the book was revolutionary. It was a revolutionary text. And we know now, I think, looking back with a modern vantage point, some of the problems with second-wave feminism and with white feminism But even with that context, this book stands up in so many ways. And I think like anything, it must be read with a critical eye, but it is a magnificent work. Well, there you go, Jam. You have given me two pieces of reading homework and I will do my best to get through them soon. This is so exciting. You had a book today that I had already read and I had two that you hadn't. I am so proud. I think that moves me one tiny little step closer to evening the ledger from the entire series and the one before. Astrid, that is all we have time for today on this glorious topic of momentum. Thank you for being with us, my friend, because we could not do this podcast without your hard work and magnificent brain. To those of you who are listening... We are interviewing an extremely special guest later this week, Angela Saini, author of Superior and Inferior. She is absolutely phenomenal. You will love her books and you will love our conversation with her even more. So make sure you subscribe right now, right now, even if you think you already have. Better check, folks, because you don't want to miss this one. It will be available in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts on Thursday. When you're there, please make sure you rate and review this episode. It will help other people find this podcast and the glorious Angela Saini. 